Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Aaron Mastani. This evening, my co-host is the one and only Michael Walker. Michael, how are we? Okay, it is officially flying ant day and they made their way into my bathroom, so I was fighting them off before coming here, but I'm hopefully not going to be too flustered to have reasonably articulate answers. Officially flying ant day. Is that one of those things that politicians celebrate? Every day there seems to be a day on Twitter we have to recognize. Today is flying ant day, according to Michael Walker. Uh, coming up on tonight's show, a Rupert Murdoch hatchet man gets allegedly caught up in an extraordinary scandal. Mayor Jamie Driscoll gives an outstanding performance on Newsnight, and a leading Tory MP is cheerleading, wait for this, the Taliban. Stay tuned for all of that. First story. Keir Starmer has been facing a growing backlash over his decision to keep the two-child benefits cap. Many Labour frontbenchers, including Starmer himself, have previously described the policy as heinous, obscene, inhumane, pushing families into poverty, and punitive. But the leadership now says they will keep the cap that limits universal credit and child tax credits to a family's first two children only. Brought in as a flagship austerity policy by George Osborne, experts say 1.5 million children are losing out because of the cap. Scrapping it would cost around £1.3 billion a year and would lift 250,000 children out of relative poverty while lessening the poverty of a further 850,000 children. That's just over £1,000 per child to transform their lives. In a sit-down interview with Tony Blair today, this is how Keir Starmer responded to the issue. So when people say, look, you should be making all these spending commitments and... Well, uh, my first reaction, you know, we keep saying collectively as a party, we've got to take tough decisions. And in the abstract, everyone says, that's right, Keir. <laughs> and then we get a tough decision. We've been in one of those for the last few days saying, well, don't like that. Can we just not make that one? Um, I'm sure there's another tough decision somewhere else that we could make. Um, but we have to take the tough decisions. And this isn't, you know, this isn't some sort of reflection on some focus group that says, you know, we'd like Labour to um, have an economic straitjacket on. It's the fundamentals. Liz Truss was very different um, to others. She proved the thesis that if you make unfunded uh, commitments, uh, then the economy um, is damaged and working people pay the price. Extraordinary. Keir Starmer, King's Council, very rich, successful man, nice house in central London, laughs, he did laugh, <laughs> at the prospect of uh, young people, kids still staying in, in poverty. And he says it's a difficult decision, tough decision. It's not a tough decision that affects people like you, my friend. And it's easy to make tough decisions when it's other people that pay the price. Now, Lucy Powell was the Labour front bencher tasked with defending the position this morning. She said this. There are lots of things that he would like uh, to reverse, but the economic reality uh, means that we just can't. The, the, uh, to coin a phrase, there just frankly is no money left. The, the cost of government borrowing, as inflation and interest rates rise, that cost of government borrowing is going up and up and up all the time. We've had COVID, Ukraine, the disastrous uh, mini budget of, of Liz Truss. Uh, last year. And so now we face this harsh economic reality that we're in today. That means that we, we just can't make promises that we can't afford uh, to keep. And that means some difficult choices, some difficult uh, issues and some difficult uh, policies that we would otherwise you know, like to do. Difficult choices, difficult policies. Again, not difficult for these people in Westminster. And to coin a phrase, there just is frankly no money left. To coin a phrase. Now, is that political stupidity or gaslighting? You decide, because that's the precise language that the Tories used when they took power in 2010. It was based on a note that Gordon Brown's Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Liam Byrne, left for his Tory successor as Labour left office. And David Cameron proceeded to brandish it everywhere, using it as the ultimate justification for austerity. I became Prime Minister at a time when there was no money left. And I, I bring this with me everywhere, the note that the Treasury Minister left, and it's, it, there it is. Dear Chief Secretary, I'm afraid there is no money. That is the situation I inherited. So we have had to make difficult decisions over these last five years, and I accept not every one of the decision has been easy for people. It wasn't an absolute truth that there wasn't any more money in 2010. In fact, across the 2010s, historically low interest rates meant accessing money was literally cheaper than ever before. And it isn't an absolute truth that there isn't any money now. 
And governments always have ways of finding money. They can borrow, they can raise taxes, and they can even print more. When it came to finding £2.3 billion for weapons to give Ukraine last year, nobody said a thing. But when it comes to kids in the UK, both the Tories in 2010 and Labour today prefer the language of austerity. Tough decisions, difficult decisions. That was the terminology in 2010, although, of course, it was never tough for the people talking in those terms. And in 2023, that rhetoric is being repeated, but also upgraded. Now it's fiscal responsibility and discipline. On BBC Newsnight, this was Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Jonathan Ashworth. Well, my views on this particular aspect of universal credit are well documented. But I've also been pretty critical of what the Conservatives have done to our economy. Crashing our economy, being very cavalier with our public finances, which has meant interest rates are going up, mortgages are going up, and of course we have inflation at such levels that it's really hurting poorer families. That means that we've got to be really disciplined in our approach to public spending, and we cannot make unfunded spending commitments. So Keir Starmer and our Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves have been very clear we are not changing policy on this. Let's just go over what he said there for one minute. I'll be quick. Inflation is hurting poorer households the most. Absolutely. Food inflation is around 20 to 30%. It's really hurting poorer people. Therefore, we shouldn't take 250,000 kids out of poverty for £1.3 billion. How does that logic work? Well, according to uh, Guardian columnist New Labour fangirl and liberal Nepo baby Polly Toynbee, it makes perfect sense. She also appeared on Newsnight, where she explained why Starmer had made the decision to keep kids in poverty. We're exactly where we were leading up to 97, when Labour had iron discipline on any spending promises, whatever. This one is incredibly painful uh, because Labour ministers, Labour shadow ministers themselves have said what a grotesque policy this is. But the point is that Keir Starmer has said there will be no spending commitments until right up close to the election, when 18 months from now, perhaps, they will decide exactly what the priorities should be. If they start spending loosely now, by the time they get there, they won't be able to shape their priorities. Uh, so this fiscal toughness seems absolutely necessary, but unbelievably painful. Unbelievably painful. It's very easy to say something is necessary when you have a villa in Tuscany, Polly. It's, it's, it's very easy. It's too easy, in fact. It accounts for too much of political analysis in this country. So to be clear, it's about priorities although Labour still hasn't worked out what its priorities actually are. That seems to change from month to month and won't be able to do that until closer to the election. Jeremy Corbyn, however, gave his view of that argument by saying this. If lifting 250,000 children out of poverty isn't a priority, then what is? Good question, Jeremy. We also shouldn't pretend that Labour hasn't made any spending commitments so far. Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy pledged this month to do more than the Tories for Ukraine. That means an increase on the £2.3 billion the UK sent to Ukraine in each of 2022 and 2023. That was for weapons. So there's one priority Labour's already decided there is money for, ergo weapons to Ukraine. Also this month, the Times reported that Labour planned to follow Tory tax plans if elected. That included not raising taxes, including on the highest earners. If true, that's another way the Labour Party isn't struggling to lay down some priorities. Launching Labour's local election campaign in March, Starmer was happy to pledge a freeze on council tax for voters. Remember that? Yet another policy Starmer didn't find hard to prioritise. The money was there, but now it isn't. The Labour front bench may be coming out to defend Starmer's decision to keep kids poor, but the party's backbenchers aren't happy about it. Speaking with LBC, Jeremy Corbyn said this about Labour MPs. They are seething with anger, particularly as commitments have been made regularly by the party that we would take children out of poverty. Even the Blair government, which Keir Starmer often quotes, did do a great deal to lift children out of poverty by not having a two-child policy. Even in areas like mine, there are high levels of child poverty, probably 40% of the children in my constituency, all across the northeast, which Jamie Driscoll represents, the mayor for North Tyne. A third of all children across the whole of the region are living in poverty. That has got to go and got to change. And it's the Labour Party that ought to be offering that pathway to change, and it's not doing it at the moment. That backbench anger was given a lot of airtime at a meeting of Labour MPs last night. The Guardian reports this. 
At a bad-tempered meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party on Monday, almost every question to the Deputy Leader Angela Rayner was about Starmer's stance on the two-child benefit cap. Some frustrated MPs called it a mistake and urged party leaders to reconsider. Senior party figures, including Anna Sawa, the leader of the Labour Party in Scotland, which sets its own policy, publicly broke ranks and suggested they would fight the policy, while several shadow cabinet ministers said they were, quote, despairing at the decision. This morning, there was a meeting of the shadow cabinet, just the place you'd expect those despairing front benches to challenge Starmer's policy. However, the Times' Patrick Maguire reported this. Labour welfare rebellion latest, understand not one shadow cabinet minister spoke out against party policy on the two-child limits at their meeting this morning. But it's not just backbench Labour MPs who are unhappy. Four Labour mayors have now joined the backlash coming out publicly against Starmer's decision on child poverty. They are London Sadiq Khan, Liverpool City Region Mayor Steve Rotherham, West Yorkshire Mayor Tracy Brabin and Bristol Mayor Marvin Rees. Another Labour figure, Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham, has also criticised Labour's approach. Asked by LBC's Andrew Marr whether Starmer should reverse the two-child policy, Burnham said this, Yes, in an ideal world, for sure. Oppositions have to show what differences they would make. It would be, I think, to indicate and to develop the position further, to say, as and when resources allow, this would be a priority. That would reassure people who want to see this issue addressed. The last Labour government had a mission around reducing child poverty, and that was one of the great achievements of the last Labour government. I would encourage the shadow cabinet and Keir to keep this under review. As and when there is the headroom to do something, this clearly should be at the front of the queue. Things may yet come to a head this week at the National Policy Forum in Nottingham. That will bring together over the weekend trade unions, party members and shadow cabinet representatives. According to the BBC, unions Unison and Usdor are set to oppose the two-child policy. That's important because both support Starmer backing an amendment that mentions it explicitly. Quite a big deal. Michael, what do you make of Labour's line on this story? The whole situation is incredibly depressing, basically. I mean, I think it probably would help, though, first of all, to sort of put forward what their argument would be. Now, I think Keir Starmer will be saying and his team will be saying, everyone on Twitter is saying, we're 20 points ahead. There's no way we could possibly lose the next election. They're looking at 1990. Labour was also 20 points ahead. And then they lost in 1992 with Tory attacks on tax being a big issue. So they don't think, oh, look, we're, we're 20 points ahead, so we can be incredibly relaxed about tax and spend which has historically been one of the weaknesses of the Labour Party when it comes to general elections. I actually think, as much as I kind of disagree with her, Polly Toynbee's argument in The Guardian was consistent, at least, which was to say, look, this is exactly what New Labour did. This was their playbook. What they said is, we're going to stick to the Tories' tax and spending plans to neutralise the whole attack line, which is that Labour will bankrupt the country and or increase your taxes. And she says... That meant that they had to make some horrible decisions in the first term, including Harriet Harman following through on Tory plans um, to make cuts to benefits for single mums. But ultimately, at the end of the three terms, what was the case after three terms of a Labour government? You did have um, more money going into poor people's politics. So it's essentially this argument, Labour, let them do anything they possibly can to get elected and then trust them that at the end of all of it, things will still be better off. So it's basically just, just trust them. Just put your trust in them and let them do whatever it takes to get elected. Now, obviously, um, I don't think the new Labour experience is going to be something that necessarily everyone wants to repeat, mainly because of the Iraq war, but there are lots of other examples. And I suppose what this also comes to is why this is... To, so, so that's how they're justifying it, right? This is how they're justifying it. And it's not completely bonkers, um, but I think people would be very reasonable to find it very depressing and not want to vote for them because of it, right? This is not a politics which fills me with hope and, and joy. The other depressing thing about it, I think, is that what they're saying, they're using this language of we have to be really real with people. You know, we have to be honest. We have to be real with people. And then they are saying a load of things which aren't true. So Liz Truss's policy proved that you can't possibly do things such as... Um, take away punitive benefit sanctions for mothers, right? Which is essentially what they're saying now. It doesn't prove that at all. Like, no economist is going to say, ah, oh, yes, what, what Keir Starmer is talking, that is someone who understands economics. No, the reason Liz Truss had problems with the financial market, I've spoken to people who work in financial markets, is because her plan just didn't add up. Her plan was just this magic, okay, we're going to spend loads of money, we're going to um, cut taxes, magically growth is going to come around and everything is going to be, you know, brilliant. 
They didn't believe that. And that's why it was a problem. Labour can afford to do some deficit financing so long as they've got a plan, which is how they are going to bring about growth, which doesn't seem like completely deluded. Liz Truss obviously wasn't a particularly convincing person. Another problem that's, I think, uh, the way you can look at this and say, okay, Labour in government will do some interesting things and they're just saying whatever they need to get elected. If they follow through on what they have said they will do in government, they won't have any space to do interesting things. And the reason for that is because of their fiscal rules. Now, one of them, which is to say what we will do is make sure that day-to-day spending, so current spending, is funded only by revenue. We're not going to run deficits on the current on the, on the current budget. Now, that's somewhat reasonable. That's what Labour under McDonald said. The thing which is going to completely hamstring them is they've said debt will be falling as a proportion of GDP after the end of a, uh, a single parliament. Now, that's exactly the same straitjacket that the Tories have put themselves under. And the OBR forecast suggests that that means that the next government will actually have to make lots of cuts. And that includes the capital spend. So how Labour are going to make these investments, which are going to bring about a green industrial revolution, when they've literally got a fiscal rule which makes that impossible, I don't see. I mean, I suppose if you're going to look at the sort of magical thinking again, which is Liz Trust territory, they're saying we're going to do some planning reform. Then within four years, that's going to bring about so much growth that we can fund £28 billion a year investing in a green economy whilst debt still falls down. Doesn't make any sense. So they're going to have to break one of their promises in government or be completely dud and change nothing. That was the Labour backlash to Starmer's commitment to the two-child benefit cap. But what do the public think? This polling from YouGov shows that at 60%, a majority of voters across all parties think it should stay. Only 22% think it should go. 18% don't know. And even when you look at Labour alone, 47% think it should be kept and only 35% think it should be discarded. 18% are undecided. More predictably, 78% of Tories want to keep it and over half of Lib Dems like the limits. Only 27% are against. And that's pretty depressing stuff, although I personally suspect if there was a debate on this stuff, the numbers would change a little, at least among Labour voters. I think it's probably a majority of Labour voters would like to get rid of that cap. But with three by-elections in Tory seats coming up this Thursday, could this be a sop to voters? Michael, what's your thought here? Why, why is Keir Starmer going so big on this issue right now? I think because he wanted to have this battle, right? Now, I've seen people say, look, this polling is not a reason to scrap the policy to abolish the two-child limit for child benefit because it's a low salience issue. No one is going to be going into the next general election voting Tory because they want to keep the two-child cap on, on benefits. And that's absolutely correct. I assume what they are thinking is this is a fight they want to have, just like with Jeremy Corbyn. They really wanted to have a fight with the Labour left because they thought when the Tories attack them as being in the pockets of, of Jeremy Corbyn and these socialist campaign group MPs, it's going to help them if they can show they've had this massive fight with the Labour left. They're, they're, they're trying to prove to sections of the electorate they think will be key, um, that they have nothing to do with Corbyn. Calling them Corbynites is just ridiculous because they've been fighting with them for the past four years. I think this is similar to that. Um, and they've chosen this issue because they know that all you know, the soft left, in fact, the soft left are really committed to abolishing the two-child limit on child benefit because all policy wonks know that this is a really, really terrible, terrible policy from the Conservatives to have implemented it in the first place. It put loads and loads of kids in poverty, completely unnecessary, completely vicious, in fact, for a state to do such a thing. So you're getting people such as the, you know, the chair of the Fabians sort of saying this is the wrong thing for Keir Starmer to do. But I think he probably wanted that. He wanted a fight that said, I'm not on the Labour left. And he wanted a fight to say, I really, really don't want to spend that much money. I really, really value fiscal responsibility over um, improving the lives of some people. And he had to do that on a subject which the soft left cared about and which he was in line with public opinion on. Now, again, incredibly depressing that that is the logic, that is the sort of thing which dominates our politics and also that sort of the mainstream media take it as a given, you know, I think that there's two ways of sort of thinking about this and reporting on this. One is to get really, really angry at Keir Starmer for doing it. The other is to say, why would a Labour leader think that they have to tell these ridiculous and horrible lies to get elected? Partly then that gets you into an analysis of the dominance of the mainstream media in this country and sort of the, 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 the ridiculousness of living in a first-past-the-post system. I think both of those analyses and both of those sort of critiques are, are very valid. Um, they are somewhat distinct. 
have to say, I entirely agree on the media stuff. And if you agree with Michael too, as well as myself, go to novarimedia.com forward slash support, help build a people-powered media. You might have noticed, but we try and have a somewhat intelligent debate here on Novara about policy decisions like this. That's a rare thing in the UK media. If you want to be a part of that, help us do even more of it, go to novarimedia.com forward slash support. I believe that link is in the description. And let's move on to our next story, which is somewhat related. Yesterday, Jamie Driscoll, the mayor for North Tyne, left the Labour Party. That now means he's governing as an independent, and it also means he'll be standing as an independent when he seeks to contest the newly formed North East Meralty next May. Speaking of which, Driscoll's crowdfunder launched yesterday afternoon. It's so far raised over £85,000. Not bad. Mayor Driscoll appeared on BBC News Night yesterday evening, making the argument for why a Labour government should oppose austerity. His opposite number on the show was former Labour staffer John McTernan, who said this. Labour is going to inherit, when we win the election next year in 2025, the worst fiscal situation, the worst, most stretched public uh, spending limits and tax receipts uh, that any incoming Labour government has had uh, since the war. Um, and we've said very clearly, we will say what we will do and we'll say how we will fund it. And there's loads of people who would say we should, we should remove this limit. After that, then the next question is, are you going to remove the total benefits cap? Then after that, are you going to uh, do something about local housing allowance? After that, are you going to do something about universal credit itself? Because universal credit is uh, the consequence of Osborne taking £12 billion out of welfare uh, over the period that he was Chancellor. There's a whole lot of things. Labour has to have priorities. It was Nye Bevan who said the language of priorities is the religion of socialism. So lifting kids out of poverty is not a priority for Labour? Lifting kids out of poverty by growing the economy so we can spend more on public services is the, is the priority. Okay. It has to be. Jamie Driscoll, isn't this just fiscally sensible and also pretty popular with voters? I don't think the idea of, of keeping people in poverty actually is fiscally sensible at all. We know that it's storing up problems for the long term. If you look at where we are in Britain now, and I think everybody who's not defending a political party would agree we're in a serious mess about a lot of things. This is the result of, what, 13 years of austerity, where we've had public services cut. It costs a fortune to keep kids in poverty. Our health is plummeting. Our NHS waiting lists are through the roof. Teachers are leaving education in droves. How are we going to get a healthy, productive, high-skilled workforce what do you unless think we look after kids? What do you think this decision tells us about Sakir Starmer's approach to welfare? I think if we look slightly beyond that, and the report that came out recently, he says, I'm not interested in hope and change. Or where's Streeting saying, you know what, no hope is better than false hope. When you have the leadership of the Labour Party saying, we have no hope, then that goes beyond expectation management. Uh, that is, we don't have a plan. And I'm worried about that. I thought that was seriously oppressive stuff there from Jamie Driscoll. And I can't help but feel that in a sane political culture, Jamie Driscoll would be a, quote, centrist dad, rather than regarded as too radical to run for a Labour Party on the apparently centre-left. It's common sense to say that getting kids out of poverty is clearly to the long-term benefit of not just those kids and their families, but public services and the economy too. Driscoll went on to explain how Starmer's position on the benefit cap isn't even fiscally responsible. I'm a big fan of fiscal responsibility, and I've demonstrated it. And until today, I was a Labour mayor, but they didn't seem to, to champion the fact that I've smashed the job creation target. Every pound I invest returns more than three pound of Treasury in payroll taxes alone. Right, but so you're you're so, you're a big fan of fiscal responsibility yeah. when it's in your part of the world, but not when it's Sakir Starmer. Well, this, I would say, isn't fiscal responsibility. What is it then? What do you I call think it? this is playing to a certain section of the electorate, that are, I don't know, Daily Mail readers, whatever they are. Pe the people people who, me, who would need to vote for Labour in order for Labour to gain a majority. Well, I think if you actually explain the reality of it, and we've seen the economics reports on your own programme there, that, for example, investing in retrofitting homes, every pound spent saves the NHS 42p alone. So investment is the way that you get this economy going again. You can't do it by saying, we have no hope, we're not going to spend anything. Mm. The signal, particularly if we talk about that 28 billion for the climate emergency, 
then if you look at what's happened in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, that's levered in billions, if not trillions. You must send a signal to the market. I know I work with businesses every day. They need to see a long-term plan because they can't turn the taps on and off if they're hiring researchers and, and plant and machinery. Next up, Driscoll spoke about trusts in politics. I don't think you win trust by saying what you're going to do and then you turning on your policies. It comes down a lot of the time to trust in integrity and in characters. People across politics are really worried that they can't trust anybody. There's millions of people thinking, who speaks for me right now? And when the number one trending thing on Twitter tonight was Sir Kid Starver, then I think that's not going to do the Labour Party any favours at but all. Twitter's not the real world, is it? Uh, nevertheless, Literally that speaks no. to what people worry about. You know, when if you're saying that stopping kids being in poverty with all the attendant long-term costs is not a priority, then I think people of every party are going to think... Well, We're saying getting this government out is a priority and we'll do anything we can to get this government out. And having been beaten four times in a row, we really have to go a long way to meet the public where they are, so not... What the party should have been doing is praising the work of Metro mayors who've demonstrated that they can do it. I've done this without raising a penny in council tax okay. by working with businesses to lever the I money in. It's crazy, isn't it? You know, Jamie Driscoll has actually been elected. He's a very popular candidate um, going forward. You know, that's why they blocked him, right? Because they knew he was going to win the candidacy internally within Labour. Uh, he's been praised by people across the political spectrum. But then, you know, John McTernan, who's never actually stood for public office, is telling him what you have to do to align yourself with the public. Michael, when it comes to actual delivery, Jamie Driscoll is a far more credible figure than anyone in the shadow cabinet. I think, I think that's a pretty fair statement. What does it say about the Labour Party when somebody so, I think, credible and authoritative has been blocked from even standing for election? I think his answers there were very, very impressive, very articulate guy. And I think this is one of the things which is so depressing about Keir Starmer's leadership, right? Because I think, as I've been saying, it, it's not completely nonsensical to think, to become a Labour Prime Minister in our first-past-the-post system with a right-wing media, you might have to sort of shave off lots of the left-wing arguments you might want to make. Now, I'm not necessarily, you know, it, it might be the case that Keir Starmer is just actually quite quite right-wing, or it might be that he is somewhat left-wing and he's decided that he wants to make all of these right-wing arguments to try and get elected in the style that New Labour did by reassuring the, the sort of right-wing establishment that has power in this country. There's a couple of problems with that, which is obviously, one, you're going to massively minimise what you are able to do in government because you'll have made all of these pledges which are sort of putting you in a straitjacket for when you enter government. And two, and I think this is very important, which is by making those arguments which are meant to reassure Britain's right-wing establishment, you are shifting the Overton window to the right, right? So when, say, you've got someone like Jeremy Corbyn, who's leader of, of the Labour Party, he is making these left-wing arguments. That means that around 40% of the time, you know, if you're the opposition, the government gets 60%, the opposition get 40%. 40% of the time, the politician on the television is telling you that austerity isn't necessary, that taxing the rich isn't necessarily going to crash the economy, um, that people on benefits don't deserve to be demonised, right? And that has an effect of, not necessarily, well, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn did shift the, the Overton window, but if you were, say, following Jeremy Corbyn, if it was already, if this was a sort of continuous, consistent policy of the opposition, that would sort of anchor public opinion somewhere to the centre, right? Because you've got those voices being platformed. Now, if Keir Starmer has decided he's, he doesn't want to be that voice, he doesn't want to be anchoring um, political discourse to the left because he's he, he thinks the only way to possibly get elected is to be quite right-wing, which is essentially, I think, is, is the decision he's made, then that could be attenuated if you say, well, let's have people who are at a sort of safe distance from us who can make some of those left-wing arguments to stop public discourse just going wildly to the right without hearing anyone making the correct and true arguments, which is that taxing the rich isn't going to crash the economy. In fact, in many respects, it will improve the economy because these people are just inflating asset prices, which does nothing for anyone other than increase working people's rent, right? So, so that would be good for the economy. But you need those, you could call them outriders, to be there making sure that that argument for left-wing policies is being heard. So Keir Starmer can then go through the middle. You know, Keir Starmer doesn't want to be the person making the most left-wing arguments on the television. He could have outriders do that. But what the Labour Party seem to have done is to systematically say, anyone to our left must be expunged from public life. And if you're saying, we're not going to make left-wing arguments because we won't get elected, 
and two, anyone who makes left-wing arguments can't possibly be in the Labour Party, then what you are doing is essentially banning left-wing arguments from public discourse. And I can't see how that doesn't get us to a situation where discourse just moves ever further and further and further to the right. And in that way, it is more depressing than Tony Blair and New Labour because Tony Blair didn't decide to expunge any left-wing arguments from public life, but it seems as if Keir Starmer wants to do that. People might say he was only, you know, he wasn't reselected as a mayor. This isn't expunging him from public life. Well, how our media operates is that they give a certain amount of time to the Conservatives, a certain amount of time to Labour, and then a little bit of time to the Lib Dems. If you aren't in one of those parties, it's very difficult to get a hearing from the mainstream press. So if you are kicking out anyone who might be able to talk with authority in a manner which makes the correct arguments about the economy, maybe, I think there would be a legitimate critique, which would be to say, Jamie Driscoll, maybe he would have trouble if he was leader of the Labour Party to get elected in certain parts of, of the Red Wall where people are very fiscally conservative. That's a reasonable argument. I'm not 100% sure if I think it's correct, but it's reasonable. But the idea that anyone making these correct arguments can't make them anymore, which is essentially what Keir Starmer is saying, is depressing and dangerous, I think. Another candidate blocked from standing by the Labour leadership is Mish Rahman. Mr Rahman was endorsed by seven trade unions. Here's his statement. I have been informed by the Labour Party I have not made the long list in the Wolverhampton West parliamentary selection, despite gaining strong local support and the backing of seven trade union affiliates. This is not a shock. It is what I and my team expected. None of my fellow Bernie Grant Leadership Programme alumni have been selected. We were told the party would support us towards leadership positions as black and ethnic minority activists. Yet after this long listing process, nothing has changed. As a two-term currently elected member of Labour's NEC, that's its National Executive Committee, I've chaired panels for long-listing in other parliamentary selections. I'm therefore allowed to long-list candidates, but have not been long-listed myself. I was blocked for how I voted on the NEC in relation to the composition of party disciplinary structures following the EHRC report. This was a position shared by an array of NEC members, including trade union representatives. Being blocked for casting a vote in a democratic process should be a serious concern for all of us in the Labour Party. I found the blocking of Mish Rahman so informative in regard to how the establishment thinks about diversity. You can be brown or black, LGBT or straight, a man, woman or non-binary. It doesn't matter, as long as you agree with us on everything. But as soon as there's the slightest disagreement, then I'm afraid you're the wrong kind of brown or black person. Forget even being elected, you won't even be on the long list. It's about embracing diversity regarding how we look, as long as there's complete homogeneity in what we think. In this world, people from minority backgrounds, however celebrated they are by establishment liberals, are little more than background decoration. And if they are, they can be easily disposed. And don't you dare think you can be more than that. Given the findings of the Ford report, which has basically been ignored by Starmer since it was published, it's worth asking precisely how much progress has been made on the politics of race in this country at all. The Labour right in particular don't seem to like Tories of colour. Just ask Rupert Huck, who said Quasi Quartain can't really be black because he's a Tory. So brown and black people can't be conservatives and they can't be democratic socialists. But they can be political heroes, inspirational, wonderful, elevate them just so long as they're in the political center and they agree with everything we say. That's called diversity. Maybe use that as a hashtag when you discuss it on Twitter. Before we move away from Labour, we should talk about the sit-down interview between Keir Starmer and Tony Blair today. This clip was towards the end of their discussion as they wrapped up. When you look back, the other difference between us is that I was lucky enough to have Neil Kinnock and John Smith before me. You know, you, you, you weren't, right? <laughs> Put it like that. So, <laughs> I just want in the last bit, because people should acknowledge what you have done since 2019, because I tell you, it was not easy. <laughs> so, In the closing minute, like, how? How well, have you done? Uh, I'll just pick you up on your interest. I mean, we're trying to do Kinnock, Smith and Blair in one run and to do it in five years. And that is 
has meant we've had to go at pace. And it meant we've had to be really ruthless and tough. We couldn't, you know, along the way, when we've got to difficult decisions, people have said to me, don't do it this year, Keir. Leave it. We'll do it at conference next year. And we've had to go at this at pace because we haven't got the time um, to waste on this. And every day I remind myself that to get from where we landed in 2019 to a one-seat Labour majority, a one-seat Labour majority is going to take a bigger swing than 1997. And if that doesn't sober, I often talk about politics as a sort of sharp intake of breath. That gives me a sharp intake of breath every time I say it because people are inhaling the polls. Um, and that is a big, big, big mistake. But the revenge is fundamental. So we had to, the first thing we had to do was change the party. And I don't know whether this is because I came into politics later in life, etc. But when you lose that badly, I strongly believe you don't look at the electorate and say, what on earth were you doing? Didn't you listen to us? Should we shout a bit louder? <laughs> you look in the mirror and say, uh, we got this wrong. We've got to change as a party. And we had to change as a party at speed. I also felt strongly that we didn't really have the right to say how we'd run the country until we'd done the change. People were not going to listen to the Labour Party until we showed we had changed and changed for a good purpose. Second bit was then, and we had to be really unrelenting on that, really clear, difficult decisions. Um, and, you know, and, and change is never finished. Um, but we got as far as then the next stage, which is to expose the government as not fit to govern. Now, we've been ably assisted in that, I have to admit, um, by the last three prime ministers. And now we get to that place of, well, if not them, then why you? But that's, this is where, you know, because all along the way I've had the advice, you know, when we're at the stage of we've got to change the party, the people yelling from the sidelines saying, where's your vision? Go bolder, go bigger. And I said, we've got to fix the party first. We've got to change the party first. So there will be people all along the journey telling you to do it in a different order. But we had to do it um, in that order. But now we get the chance to lay out the change that an incoming Labour government would put. But if we hadn't changed the party, it would be as naught. Because I strongly think that the electorate don't usually look to change the government if they're pretty happy with it, if things are all right. What can you say? This is the same guy, by the way, who was saying that Remain in 2019 was supported by a majority of the country, go back to the people, even though 400 constituencies voted to leave, they're wrong. And now, clearly, he's got very strong political instincts. He knows what he thinks. I, I really think those comments underscore what I've always said about Keir Starmer prior to 2019. He knew that Remain and stopping Brexit was a losing hand. That was the point. Screw the country. It'll mean I get to be leader of the Labour Party. Michael, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, it's somewhat inconsistent to say when you lose an election, you have to recognise that you are in the wrong. It's not the electorate who are in the wrong. Obviously, he was the Labour politician who made sure um, that Labour would be committed to a second referendum because he said in conference there will be a second referendum and Remain will be on the ballot, which wasn't party policy at that point. So he was freelancing. Very much, very, very different to what he's saying now. I mean, in a way, it, you know, as a political operator, he has kind of done Kinnock, Smith, Blair, in fast forward. And I suppose he'd say that's why he had to be quite so brutal. I mean, the problem is, unless I've got this wrong, unless I've got the timing wrong, uh, what he's saying there, the vision bit is now, right? So he said he's changed the party and now the vision, this is the vision bit. This is the five missions. This is where we discover what Labour will do when they're in power. Now, as far as I'm concerned, what have we learned about what Labour will do when they're in power? They won't spend any money. They've got this £28 billion pledge, which is good. You know, the idea that they would invest this money in the green economy, you could have that as a silver lining. That is worth voting for, essentially. But it doesn't make any sense if they keep the fiscal rule that debt has to be declining as a proportion of GDP. Because uh, I don't see how you can possibly afford £28 billion, even at the end of a parliament if you've got that rule in place. So... It, Either they don't have vision or they're going to have to break another one of their pledges when they get into government. Now, if they're going to break you know, that pledge when they get into government, I'd be happily surprised, pleasantly surprised. I'd be ecstatic if they decided, oh, you know what, actually, um, we're not going to have debt falling as a proportion of GDP when we get into power. We are going to prioritise investing in a green economy, one, because climate change is very urgent, and two, because that's actually how you bring about growth. You can't say, let's grow the economy, then we'll invest. You invest to get the growth. But we are in a situation whereby... The only hope for a Labour government is that he's currently lying about what a Labour government would do. And that is, it's not, it's not, a, it's not the best place to be as a country, I think. Next story. 
In 2001, Britain invaded and occupied Afghanistan as part of a broader coalition led by the United States. That was in response to the attacks on 9-11, despite no Afghans being involved in those attacks. Between 2003 and the end of 2014, UK operations in Afghanistan were conducted under the name Operation Herrick. After that, UK personnel operated under Operation Toral. Across both, 457 service personnel died in an occupation which cost the British taxpayer tens of billions of pounds and the US taxpayer more than a trillion dollars. But despite much blood and treasure being shed, the Allies fully withdrew in August 2021 as a Taliban offensive retook the capital, Kabul, after the US withdrew most of its forces a few weeks earlier. That was, in short, a stunning defeat for the Allies. A 20-year war and occupation had ended in catastrophic failure. That is, unless you're Tory MP Tobias Elwood. He recently went on a trip to the country with the Halo Trust. They're a humanitarian NGO whose central mission is the removal of landmines. I'm here back in Helmand province in Afghanistan, courtesy of the Halo Trust. And all that's happened here since 9-11, this is a very different country in deal. It feels different now that the Taliban have returned to power. Well, it may be hard to believe, but security has vastly improved. Corruption is down and the opium trade has all but disappeared. Pylons distribute electricity to the cities. Solar panels are now everywhere, powering irrigation pumps, allowing more crops to grow. And the Halo Trust, the world's largest mine-clearing charity, is removing tons of lethal ordnance, allowing more and more Afghans to farm safely again. But here's the dilemma. Why didn't these game-changing programs not happen when NATO was here? And after NATO's dramatic departure, should the West now engage with the Taliban? You quickly appreciate this war-weary nation is, for the moment, accepting a more authoritarian leadership in exchange for stability. Well, here in Kabul, the streets are relatively safe. The checkpoints have all gone, businesses are reopening, the economy is starting to function. Our British embassy is just through those gates over there. Unfortunately, it's still closed. There is a calm, though, to the country that local elders say they've not experienced since the 1970s. That's how long ordinary Afghans have experienced war. So do we shout from afar and risk another era of instability, a rise in terrorism and mass migration? All re-engage. If the EU embassy can open up, so can ours. And incrementally, we can encourage the progressive changes to the economy and critically for girls' education and female workers that we all want to see. Well, I depart Afghanistan with a better appreciation as to how we can help this vulnerable country that feels abandoned by the international community. It is time to reopen the embassies. It is time to re-engage. And Britain should lead the way. What a surreal video. People are accepting a more authoritarian security uh, situation. Are they really? The women are saying, you know what? I can't read or go to school anymore, but that's fine because there's a more acceptable security situation. Was there what? An Ipsos Mori poll on that? And this point about Britain leading the way, given China already has strong ties with the Afghan government and the EU has a delegation there, I don't quite understand how that's possible. But anyway, it's something British politicians love to say, don't they? We're leading the way. We led the way by invading. Then we led the way by leaving. Now we're leading the way by trying to re-engage all over again. Leading the way. Up, down, left, right. It's like our foreign policy is a headless chicken, despite what the think tanks and people in expensive suits want you to think that they are really on top of things. They really, really aren't. Elwood later appeared on Newsnight, that was yesterday evening, where he made a series of stunning claims. In my visit, I mean, I was just astonished with the profound changing complexion uh, that I saw from a security perspective, from certainly a corruption perspective, perspective uh, of former uh, President Ashraf Ghani's government, uh, but also from the opium trade as well. I'm not saying these things haven't disappeared. I'm just saying this war-torn nation has not experienced relative peace like this, I think, since the 1970s. And that then poses a very, very big question. If we do want to nudge this country forward, if we do want to see uh, better rights for, for women to get uh, schools reopened, not just for 11-year-olds, but, you know, half of the population uh, under the age of 11, the kids, the boys and girls are not going to school. Do we do this by lecturing from afar or do we then do this by starting to re-engage 
with that beginning step of opening our embassy. I make it really clear the economy could easily collapse. There's a vacuum now. It could be filled by you know, Iranian influence, uh, Chinese or Russian okay. and so forth. Terrorism could once again uh, grip the nation too. And with massive migration problems, Let me uh, we owe it to the 40 million people. We owe it to the 40 million people that are there who we've abandoned to have a better strategy than what we've got at the moment, which is, as I say, from lecturing from distance, sure. which is having absolutely no effect whatsoever. So Afghanistan is enduring its longest period of peace since the 1970s, and the opium trade has collapsed. That second claim is undeniable, by the way. Satellite imagery analysed by information service ALSIS shows how in Helmand, by far the largest opium-producing province, the area of poppy cultivation fell from over 129,000 hectares in 2022, 129,000 to only 740 hectares by April this year. Which begs the question, why precisely did we invade? After all, no Afghans were involved in 9-11, and after 20 years of occupation and the Taliban returning to power, the only substantial change was that the taxpayers had basically paid to re-energize Afghan opium production. We lost almost 500 service personnel as well. Was that worth all that loss of life? Was it worth the tens of billions of pounds? Was it worth the more than 70,000 Afghan and Pakistani civilians who, according to an assessment by Brown University, are estimated to have died as a direct result of the war? Those are important questions, ones our elite don't want to answer. Now, the counter-argument to all of that was made by the other guest on Newsnight yesterday evening, former member of the Afghan parliament, Fawzia Kufi. My question to uh, this gentleman is that how many women actually he met in his trip to Afghanistan? Well, let's, you can ask him. How let, many let, women actually him. accompanied? Because I saw his video today campaigning for this. There are many people who work with NGOs or who campaign for NGOs and their economic interest is at risk. I'm not saying we should not engage. I have negotiated with Taliban. I'm saying is that we need to have a principal engagement, right? Since two years that there has been a world engagement with Taliban, what, what we have achieved in fact, we have just given to Taliban, and what we have given is our rights. Okay, well, the rights of Mr. my sisters, Elba, did, the rights of did, my daughters, the rights of my mothers, the rights of those who are suffering from any human rights. They are deprived. Mm. Let's Mr. see. Probably the next thing that woman will be told is to stop breathing. Now, my expectation from the world is to stand with the common principles instead of advocating for something that is actually has not really responded. It's a very reasonable point being made there. What are the red lines for engaging with the Taliban? Or should that be done in an entirely unprincipled way? Michael, what do you make of this? Because on the one hand, I feel like Tobias Elwood's talking in some sense, there should be some measure of engagement. The EU presently has it. But on the other hand, I really understand what this woman is saying, which is that clearly there have to be some red lines or at least some objectives that we ask of the Taliban, the Afghan government, in re-establishing diplomatic relations with them? Yeah, I mean, obviously the video was very strange. The video was very strange in part because of the background music and the way it was presented a bit like it was sort of a, a tourist video, sort of like, please visit this place, it's actually lovely. I, I think the liberal outrage to what Tobias Elwood said is a little bit unserious, actually. Sort of, I think everyone is sharing that clip and making out that he is saying something which is completely outrageous and nonsense. Has he completely lost his mind? Now, I'm not an expert enough on Afghanistan to, to, to know whether or not I, I agree with everything Tobias Elwood has said, but I think they are serious points he's making, right? If, if after 20 years of a government which was propped up by the outside, and we know the government was propped up by the outside because it collapsed the moment the Americans left, right? If when that was replaced by the Taliban, there was greater levels of peace across the country, then it, it is plausible that the people of Afghanistan would accept that level of authoritarianism over the constant conflict that was sort of in play in Afghanistan under the Western-backed government. Now, of course, you know, the woman that spoke very persuasively there on, on Newsnight speaks as an Afghan woman, which is a very, very important voice to listen to in a situation such as this. She also speaks as a member of the Western-backed government that collapsed the moment they left. So who speaks for the people of Afghanistan? It's, it seems very ambiguous to me. I think this is a, an issue where sort of serious research is needed. And lots of the liberals on Twitter saying, oh, Tobias Elwood, what a ridiculous guy. Oh, he's defending the Taliban. I think the points he makes should be taken very seriously. If the Taliban is the, the organization that can maintain social order in, in, in Afghanistan, 
and the speed at which they came back to power when the Western-backed government, well, when the West left, and the, and the speed at which the Western-backed government collapsed, does make it seem as if uh, to think that one cannot work with the Taliban is is very naive. Now, is there some leverage the West can use and say you have to give these rights to women before we engage with you and we give you sort of the the economic resources you might need to rebuild the country? I don't know. Open question. Very good question. But the idea that we can just say, oh, if you talk about re-engagement with Afghanistan, you're a defender of the Taliban, I think is 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 juvenile. I think you make some important points. And, and I suppose that for me, Tobias Elwood raises a big question, which is how, how do you want to influence political outcomes in Afghanistan? That's the big question. People, I think pretty much everybody in Britain would like to see, uh, obviously, greater gender equality. They would want to end things like food and income deprivation in Afghanistan. How can we influence those outcomes? What he's saying is, well, you would want some kind of diplomatic relationship to the Afghans. Of course, the alternative is you know, regime change. The thing is, we tried that. You know, the idea that somehow we'll remove the Taliban and there'll be somebody else there and there'll be a, a government that's more amenable to Western interests, we tried that. It, it, it collapsed after literally trillions of dollars being spent on it. So then you're offered two alternatives, absolutely no relationship with this country at all or some kind of diplomatic engagement. For, for me, I think the fact we have sanctions on, on Afghanistan, one of the poorest countries in the world, about 18 months ago was, was you know, undergoing an extraordinary famine. People were really struggling with an incredibly harsh winter. The fact we have sanctions in that country, I just find absolutely incredible. And I think we should be giving Afghanistan aid, food, uh, help. Of course we should. This is a country we, 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 we bombed and occupied for 20 years, and it wasn't starting from a good place either. That's the kind of uh, conversation I would like to see. Let's move on to our final story. It's all about this guy. He really does think he lives in his own world with his own rules, doesn't he? Well, I fear the cold, hard facts might be about to catch up with Harry, the Prince of Hypocrisy. That was GB News presenter and Mail Online columnist Dan Wooten talking about Prince Harry. But according to a new expose, Wooten could have been describing himself. Berlin Times reports that Wooten is alleged to have used fake online identities to trick and bribe men into sending him compromising images. Wooten is openly gay, and according to the report, between 2008 and 2018, he created a fictional show business alter ego called Martin Branning. He would then contact men as Martin Branning, offering them up to £30,000, quote, tax-free, for naked photos. One alleged victim, a married father, told Byline Times that Branning had offered him £10,000 to, quote, pose nude, saying that it felt like, quote, blackmail and entrapment. The article reports this from a second alleged victim. A second victim told Byline Times that Branning had sent him messages from untraceable numbers day and night, offering sums up to £30,000 in return for sexually compromising pictures and quite that sort of thing. This victim said he had uncovered a pattern of men who had worked with Wooten being harassed with unsolicited malicious communications. Very legal language there. It was all pretty much always the same thing. £20,000-£30,000 for naked photos. Aren't you intrigued about who I am? This sort of stuff, right? He said, adding that it was driving him, quote, insane and ultimately provoked him to go to the police who sent a detective to his home to take a statement in 2019. Martin Branning isn't the only alter ego that New Zealander Wooten is alleged to have used. Another alleged victim told Byline Times this, I received a friend request from a girl called Maria Joseph. Immediately, she was very flirty, and having just come out of a messy, a messy breakup, I didn't have my wits about me as much as I should. She soon started to send me semi-nude pics and swapped to email and phone. Her number was a New Zealand number, as she said she'd just come back from a year over there. As more pics came through, she started to request them from me, which I duly obliged. Fortunately, I kept my face out of. And then she started to send ones she'd already sent, which she brushed off with, quote, obviously I'm talking to a few guys at the same time. At this point, I'm being super careful and start to snoop further into her profile. Catfishing wasn't really a known thing back then, but I knew something was up. We had five friends in common on Facebook, Dan, plus four others. When I clicked the others, the only common link was Dan. This is Dan Wooten. Then a video came through of her having sex with a man. However, I recognized him as someone from a reality TV show as he's a friend of a friend. 
this made me realize I knew the identity of the girl and that it could not be legitimate. So with this, the NZ, New Zealand number, the sole common denominator, I was sure it was him. So I messaged Maria to say, hi Dan, interesting way to get dick pics. The next day the profile was gone. I was embarrassed that I had not been vigilant. It makes my blood run cold as to how vulnerable I have made myself. I felt stupid. During the period in which these alleged incidents took place, Dan Wooten was first an editor at Rupert Murdoch's News of the World before moving to the Daily Mail in 2011. From 2013, he was the editor of The Sun's Bizarre Showbiz column, also a part of Rupert Murdoch's News UK. According to a byline, his alleged victims include one senior News UK executive and at least six other staff from The Sun. The byline expose follows the publication of a tweet thread by Wooten's former partner of four years, Alex Truby. Truby alleges being stalked by Wooten for a period and says the host hacked his email and social media accounts. But he also posted this allegation. While Dan was in New Zealand visiting his family, I stayed at his flat to cat sit, and one day while doing some laundry, I found a holdall stuffed down the back of the washing machine. It was locked with a padlock, so naturally, I wanted to know what was inside, and I found an external hard drive. On it, I found a video of one of Dan's supposed friends, a son employee, having sex with his boyfriend. The video clearly was made in secret and filmed from afar by a hidden camera. In the same folder as the video, I found a transcript of an MSN conversation between the colleague's partner and someone called Martin Branning, whereby an arrangement was indeed made to make the sex tape in secret without his colleague's knowledge in exchange for £500. I knew instantly that Martin Branning was Dan. On Truby's allegation, Barline Times says this, Barline Times has learned that before ending his relationship with Witten, Mr. Truby confronted him over the contents of the holdall. Mr. Truby said that Witten made a tearful admission of guilt, acknowledging he was the creator and controller of the pseudonym Martin Browning. Again, very legal language there. It tells us something I suspect. Byline Times has now handed its dossier of evidence against Wooten to the Metropolitan Police. GB News, where Wooten's show is the highest rated program, hasn't responded to Byline's request for comment. But a spokesperson for News UK told the paper this, We have received an email from Byline this afternoon, which we are looking into. We are not able to make any further comment at this stage. The Byline Times report has been three years in the making and is just the first part of the paper's special investigation. So we may be seeing even more revelations in the days to come. But Wooten, who hadn't hosted his GB News show for two weeks, appeared on screens again on Monday nights. This was how his GB News colleague Darren Grimes celebrated the news. The king of evening news telly at Dan Wooten. I've met Dan Wooten a number of times. I used to go on his talk radio show every now and again. I went on his GB News show more recently. And I have to say, he is one of the most dangerous demagogic, demagogic journalists I think this country has. Like, I, I think he is despicable. You know, the, the way he speaks, I think he has no real concern about journalistic ethics. He's constantly trying to sort of sow doubt about climate change, sow doubt um, about the scientific consensus on COVID, and then viciously... Um, over and over and over and over again, choose celebrities such as Meghan Markle to just harangue relentlessly. Right? I, I think this guy is awful, <laughs> frankly. Um, I do think it's important to separate my personal opinions about this guy from these allegations. I know there were lots of people during the Hugh Edwards moment who were saying, oh, the left wouldn't be defending Hugh Edwards if he was a GB News host or a a, a Tory party politician. So I think it's very important to separate the allegations from the person. Now, there clearly are some differences here between the allegations made about Dan Wooten and the allegations made against Hugh Edwards. One is this clearly sort of contains allegations of, of dishonesty. So if you are pretending to be someone else and then asking for naked pictures when you are not in fact that person, that is deception. Now, I'm not sure about the law around this. I'm not sure if this, you know, if, if fraud is involved. As far as I understand, catfishing itself isn't isn't a, a crime. Um, so it, it, it's not just about purchasing naked pictures for money, um, which I think over the past couple of weeks we've sort of been discussing, you know, you might have a moral objection to it, but it's not necessarily um, something which we have the right to know about if, if, if both parties are engaging consensually um, in that process. Um, but if deception is involved, that does seem much more problematic. Maybe it's legal, I'm not sure, um, but it does 
suggest um, a level of sort of dishonesty and a level of exploitation. Now, the statement of one of the the people involved saying this felt like blackmail is also very interesting. I think Dan Wooten is someone who has been very good at getting scoops. He's made his career out of getting scoops, out of getting information before other people. Now, I know nothing about this story beyond what is in that Byline Times article, but I'll be interested to see what revelations come out over the, the coming days. Also interesting that no mainstream media outlet has really reported on this other than Byline. I should say very, very impressive that a small independent outlet has broken this story because they will have got all sorts of legal threats, I am sure. Very, very expensive to do this kind of journalism so that a crowdfunded website has managed it. I think kudos to them. I'm very interested to see um, what they come out with next. So well said. Have to repeat what you said there, Michael. Byline have done an extraordinary job there. Not cheap. Kudos to them. It's not easy for independent media in this country. We know that here at Navarra Media. Michael Walker, thanks so much for joining me this evening. A pleasure as always. And thanks everyone for watching tonight. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you have been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.